Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. You are a parent. Your child has grown to adulthood. Proud of their growth and survival, you give them leave to begin a search for their satisfaction in life. Of course, you hope that the child will remain close and contribute to the household. But, for a time, you let them out to explore their world. Then, the child does not return. In a text copied down around 1200 BCE, an ancient Egyptian father lamented the disappearance of his son. Fully grown, the boy had taken a job on a ship. Now, he sailed the ocean in distant lands, and the father had not heard from him. The father's name was Mena. His son was Pai'iri. Mena was concerned. He worried for Pai'iri's safety, and he wished that he would come home. Over the course of an anguished letter, Mena beseeched his son to come back to safety. This is a letter of need. Quote, High winds foretell for you the coming of the storm, my able seaman lost for the final mooring. I had set good advice of every sort before you, but you never listened. I would point out each path which hid the dangers in the underbrush, saying, should you go without your sandals, one little thorn will end your journey. I satisfied your needs in everything which normal men desire, nor would I let you cry, if only in the night, tossing and turning as you lay in bed. End quote. Mena opened his letter by reminding his son, Pai'iri, that from the very first days of his life, Mena had cared for him and attended to his needs. When Pai'iri was a baby, Mena showed him how to walk, and showed him which paths to take. He pointed out the bushes which have thorns, so that Pai'iri would know to stay away, and not injure himself on travels. From the very first, Mena was guiding Pai'iri, showing him the good ways, and ensuring that he wanted for nothing. Why has Pai'iri run away? We are not told. Did they have a fight? Did Pai'iri get led astray by friends? Or did he simply disappear one day, no explanation, and found his way to the ships which ply the great sea? We do not know, but it may be that Pai'iri was wayward in the truest sense, disappeared for no clear purpose. Or perhaps he had not fled at all, but rather gone abroad to gain experience. Perhaps he had promised his father, I'm going away for a while to see the world but I will return before too long. Now, many years later, he still had not come back, and Mena despaired of ever seeing his son again. 
Mena was also frustrated that Pairi had effectively abandoned the path which Mena prepared for him. Rather than build on his father's experience, or contribute meaningfully to the long process of building a family's position, Pairi was off serving himself. The result, Mena thinks, is that he may have become consumed by this journey. Quote, Yet you are like the swallow in her flight, wide wandering with her fledgling brood. And when you reach the delta in your great migration, you run with foreign Asiatic birds. You have fled on your own vitals, and neither heart nor sense is left within you. I am so troubled that I would range the sea if I could report that I had rescued you. Yet would you come to enter your own village, bringing just water for your monument? I said in my heart, he does not care for words, for any that I have spoken up till now. End quote. Oh, if only Pai'iri would listen, rather than destroy himself on fruitless adventures. Mena would go to the ends of the earth to ensure his son's safety, but would Pai'iri come home even to tend to his own tomb? The lack of responsibility, the self-possession, rankles Mena, and he despairs. Oh, did Pairi ever hear a word that I said to him? Loved ones can be frustrating, can't they? Rather than descend too far into criticisms or admonitions, Mena quickly returns to a positive approach. He now begins to advise Pairi to reinforce those morals and ethics which he has taught him for so long. In the process, Mena tries to build a pretty picture of what would happen if Pairi would just return home. Quote, but I must say again what I have said before. Get yourself away from the ramparts of the wicked. Fortify yourself with maxims of the wise, in speech, in name, in deed. And your ship of fools should do likewise. Then, should the ship founder far out in the east, men would address you with the honour due to a lion, even though you stood alone. As for the son who would obey his father, that text holds good for all eternity, they say. But then, you did not pause for any admonition with which I warned and warned you long ago. Should you capsize when you take ship, defying me? Should you drift downward to a watery grave? Should you stride wide upon the waves to flee the deep? Still were you lost through your own piloting. And who shall speak the word to my small boat? Go to him swiftly over the white-capped waves. I see you sinking in the chambers of the sea, and my arm does not know how to save you. All I can bring you is a slender straw, thrown in the wide path of the drowning man. There is not any way at all. End quote. This long section seems almost timeless in some of its sentiments. As for the son who should obey his father, well, how enduringly has that come down to those raised in the religions which honour Moses? After all, what is the fifth commandment but a variation on this idea? Essentially, Mena invokes a sentiment that must be as old as humanity itself. The child should obey and respect the parent. Surely, Mena thinks, this idea will be good for all eternity. Mena also writes how, if Pairi's ship should capsize and he should drown, then Mena cannot hold himself responsible for such a tragedy. 
This section isn't really for Pairi, is it? It's Mena talking to himself. You can almost see his gaze turn inwards while he writes this, reassuring his own heart that, I've done everything I can, if my son is lost, it's his own doing at this point. I can only imagine the guilt that a parent would feel when their child goes off the rails, so to speak. Endless wondering, what could I have done better? Was it a failure in me or my teaching? Mena, like countless parents before and after him, struggles with responsibilities that are now out of his control. Mena turns to one last pleading. Please, would Mpai Iri just listen to him for a moment? If nothing else, Mena's words might help Pairi find personal growth in a way that is healthy, useful, and good for those around him. Mena turns to the metaphor of a plant growing strong versus a weed which takes everything from its neighbours. Quote, You should take care to weigh my words, and you might find my teaching useful. Give ear to hair instruction so as to build on long experience. Should I allow you to ignore it altogether, you will shoot up a useless weed. There is no climbing to the height for such a one, although he provide you with an ample household. End quote. Building a household, contributing to a community. These are essential values in the Egyptian cultural mind. They are powerful drivers, and Mena seems to believe in them utterly. Or at least, he says he does. Surely, Pairi, a good boy for the most part, wants to contribute to his home. Surely he wants to be a force for good, not an obnoxious parasite on his people. A man who does good, who performs ma'at, prospers, and his household endures. A man who takes, or hurts, may find wealth for himself, but he is forever barred from attaining the heights of happiness or respect. For a man like Mena, the choice is obvious. In the final paragraph of the letter, Mena laments the shame he would feel if people knew of Pairi's disrespect. If the town knew how Pairi had abandoned his father's teachings, what would they say? Pairi is in trouble, like a charioteer who has lost control of his horses, and yet he still rejects the assistance which would help him steer the team. Quote, Oh, that a son of mine should be found out, letting this terrible course continue. You are like someone on a team of bolting horses, yet your heart would beat easy in the reins with mine. End quote. The letter comes to its end, and Mena has nothing more to say. He has given every reason he can think of, cajoled, enticed, and begged. If Pairi will not listen, then Mena does not know what else to do. He signs off with one last flourish. If Pairi will not listen now, at least keep hold of the letter, in case he is more amenable in future. Quote, My son, preserve and hold in trust this letter. Someday it might bring you good. End quote. We do not know the aftermath of this situation, but we do know a few things about the background. Mena and Pairi were real people living in the village of Set Ma'at, the place of truth. We know this village as Deir el Medina, the home of the artisans and builders who carved the magnificent tombs of the Valley of the Kings. From 1450 to 1100 BCE, the workers of Deir el Medina crafted and achieved great things. 
They also lived complex and full lives, lives which are documented in a vast corpus of papyrus and ostraca, broken pottery sherds with writing on them. Menar's letter comes from one of these ostraca. Menar himself and Pairi lived sometime between 1300 and 1100 BCE, under the majesty of the Ramesside kings. Did Pairi really disappear, gone to sea in a ship and not returning? Maybe. Menar's letter certainly reads like an earnest communication, although it was later used as a kind of teaching text for students learning their hieroglyphs. That educational afterlife complicates our understanding. Is the letter a fiction using the names of two famous villagers, or is it real, a letter that found its way into the scribal archives and then into the curriculum of young students? Whatever the answer, Menar's lament is a poignant piece. It evokes despair and pain in beautiful language, but also illustrates aspects of the parent-child relationship. These are filtered through Egyptian morals and standards to create a letter that is both immensely educational, but also touching to read. It is a great piece, and I am glad that it survived the ages. I hope Pairi came home before his father passed. I hope Mena saw him again. Thank you for listening to this short episode. The translation of this letter is taken from John L. Foster's Ancient Egyptian Literature and Anthology. Foster, a poet, professor of English literature, and Egyptologist, made some beautiful renditions of the ancient texts. He takes liberties, but only in the name of helping modern readers to connect with a mindset more than 3,000 years past. His work is wonderful, and I encourage you to read it. For now, let's say farewell to Mena and Pairi. We will meet them again in the Ramesside era of the narrative. There, we will hopefully uncover the truth of their lives and what happened between them. For now, we bid them adieu. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. The big day has arrived, a young student's graduation. After years of study, his skills are ready, he can begin his journey on the path of life. With literacy in his mind and discipline on his back, the young scribe is out on his own, a bright career is ahead. Two years later, word comes home, word of the scribe and his fortunes following school. An Egyptian teacher, a master, receives news of his former pupil, 
What he hears, he does not like. The student has fallen off the path. He has become caught in a life of carelessness, drunkenness, and overindulgence. Dissipated, the scribe does not continue his works. Instead, he idles in pleasures and loses himself in a whirl of opportunistic lust. This will never do. On a large papyrus scroll written around 1200 BCE, a series of texts provide us a glimpse at the educational tools of Egyptian scribes. These texts include a range of letters, instructions, hymns, and manifestos, some dating back a few hundred years, others more recent. Among the many wonderful pieces, we find a letter written from a schoolmaster to his former pupil. This letter is a model used to teach grammar and aspects of morality. In this sense, we call it a didactic letter, a letter meant to instruct and inform. Whether the letter itself comes from a real situation or is fictional is unclear. On the one hand, these sort of problems probably happened all the time. People emerge into adulthood and find themselves wandering, lost in certain habits. Chances are, plenty of Egyptian scribes did fall off the wagon and not quite fulfil the promises which others expected of them. But we have no proof of this definitively. All that remains is the letter, nestled in a papyrus of educational texts. Still, this letter paints a very lively picture of what might have been true events. The schoolmaster writes to his former pupil, chastising the behaviour which has been reported to him, and reminding the scribe what he is capable of. Along the way, the schoolmaster gives us a good look at the possibilities for hedonism in an ancient Egyptian town. The letter starts in the middle of things. The schoolmaster is speaking. Quote, now, concerning the thing that I have been told, that you throw away your studies and live in a swirl of singing and dancing, I hear that you go about from street to street with beer fumes hanging wherever you have been. Don't you know that beer kills the man within you? It stiffens your very soul. End quote. Beer kills the man within you. I like this sentiment. I'm not much of a drinker myself, but I know a few, and my country has a real problem with binge drinking culture. The scribe in question, apparently, has lost himself in the appeal of beer and wine. Now, Egyptian beer wasn't that strong in its alcoholic content. It was more like a small beer, a porridgey substance with enough alcohol to kill bacteria, but not enough to get you drunk easily. So I wonder if we are missing some information about different types of beer. Perhaps by about 1200 BCE, Egyptians had figured out stronger brewing methods, and created more recreational rather than nutritional beers. Or perhaps a foreign import of some kind, a beer from Canaan or Syria, was available to wealthier Egyptians of the day. Whatever it is, it seems that our dissipated scribe had got access to a lot of the devil's brew. Naturally, this led his behaviour astray and undermined his capacity for good work.
Quote, I hear you are like a bent steering oar, something that gives no help to either side of the boat. You are a shrine without its god, a house with no provisions. I hear you are discovered scrambling up a wall after breaking out of your house. People run headlong away from you because you deal them bloody wounds. End quote. Alcohol supposedly increases aggression. Whether that aggression is directed outward at those around you, or inward on yourself and your memories, excess alcohol seems to break down your usual restraints and allow aggressiveness to flow unimpeded. Naturally, this makes the scribe both entirely useless to those who need him, like a boat's oar that is bent out of shape, and also reckless, breaking out of his accommodation, climbing the walls of other people's houses, Apparently, it makes him a general nuisance or a danger, an object of fear to those who encounter him. We can sympathise with this sentiment, I think. Who hasn't seen a drunk wandering down the street in an evening and given him a wide berth, or even crossed the road to stay out of his way entirely? The scribe is in this position, unsuitable for good company, reckless in behaviour, and a danger to himself or perhaps others. Lamenting this, the schoolmaster can only make a desperate appeal to the scribe's sanity. Quote, oh, If only you knew that strong drink is destruction, you would swear off the pomegranate wine. You would not waste a thought on drinking mugs, and you would disown beer for good. End quote. The schoolmaster makes a high-minded appeal. Think of the evils of drink. Take conscious thought of the drug, and surely you would abandon it for good. Well, not so fast. We all know the pain of a hangover, and the shame of a night spent in totally unthinking behaviour. But we still drink. Whether it's in moderation, one or two glasses a week, or a regular habit, one or two a night, humans still consume that poison and enjoy the act of doing so. After all, What's better than a nice glass of wine or beer, shared over a good conversation with a friend, or a glass with dinner after a long day, to wash away the stress and the dirt? That feeling is delightful, and I struggle to see how the schoolmaster, distant and sober, thought that it would work on his pupil, who is clearly very much enjoying himself. Failing the appeal to higher morality, behaviour which might be relevant to Ma'at, the schoolmaster turns to a new tactic. He reminds the scribe of what he has learned, what he was taught, what skills he possesses. In short, he tries to remind the scribe where he comes from, in the hope that this memory will jog him out of his state and restore him to proper consciousness. Quote, you were taught to sing, to the pipe, to perform to the sound of a reed flute, to chant in time to the lyre, and to accompany the lute. End quote. The appeal is classic elite culture. You have great skills of artistry. Do not let them wither away for love of indulgence. Like a classic rock and roll biography, the schoolmaster is all but saying, You've changed, man. You used to be about the music. Of course, Musical knowledge was a divinely inspired art for many Egyptians. Although the schoolmaster doesn't reference any gods, or ma'at explicitly, the concept is there behind the lines. His appeals to reason, to artistry, or memory, or morality, are probably not going to work. 
The schoolmaster is writing from a very different position to the subject of his letter, far away in a distant city, and clearly in a much different situation. The schoolmaster really has no relevance for his scribe, who is wandering in the town, enjoying himself so greatly. His appeal to reason exhausted, the schoolmaster therefore turns to one final approach. He lays out the scribe's behaviour in stark, real terms. Quote, you were taught to sing to accompany the lute, but you loll about in fancy houses and the prostitutes flock around you, or you stand there carrying on while they do their attendance on you. You sit there under the ladies' spell, soaked with their perfumes and ointments, with your wreath of flowers around your neck, or you slap a rhythm on your gut as you stagger about, and then fall down flat on your face, and lie there covered with filth. End quote. Yikes. Enough said, right? The schoolmaster's criticisms are straight to the gut, literally. In the manner of Egyptian morality, he undermines the scribe's righteousness, his lack of agency, and his total loss of personal discipline. Swayed by easy sex and idle hedonism, the scribe has become so lost in his pleasures that he has effectively descended from the state of humanity to a state of animalness. You can picture the scribe, bleary-eyed, gap-toothed grin, wandering around in a drunken haze. Being Egyptian, he probably wears little but a kilt, likely soiled and grubby. His belly protrudes, full of beer, and he hasn't washed in days. Yuck. The letter ends here, and we hear no more of this situation. Again, this is most likely an educational text, rather than a real record of a real situation. Then again, art does imitate life. Perhaps, once upon a time, this letter or something like it was genuine, and the scribe's shame became immortalised when it was incorporated into the textbook of future students. I'm going to guess that a letter like this did once exist, that the situation did happen. But perhaps, over generations of teaching, the letter was edited and developed and translated over and over again, so it may not look exactly like the original piece. Still, a situation like this is so believable, I think we should guess that the letter did happen. The criticisms of a wayward scribe are a nice introduction to some of the other aspects of Egyptian morality. We might talk at great length about ma'at and the high-flying philosophies of kings, gods, and priests, but a letter like this reminds us of the complications in life. A promising student who got lost in drink, a gifted child who burned out under the pressures of study, extracurricular activity, and too much expectation. Or the person who went to school, did everything right, and then woke up one day, realising that they hated what their life had become. These things are not unique to the modern world, they are part of the human experience in all cultures. Wherever there is expectation, there is the opportunity for failure. Hopefully, the scribe found his way back to functioning sobriety. If only for his mental health, I hope that this man did not stay lost. I don't want to end on such a down note, so I will close this episode out with an excerpt from another text. This text comes from the same papyrus and is part of the same educational corpus. It is a text we've looked at before. 
The text in question is called the Satire of the Trades. Alternatively, it is called Be a Scribe, or The Instructions of Catty. The text explores the reasons why someone should be a scribe, the perks of the job, the comfort of the lifestyle, the positivity of knowledge. As it does so, it tries to convince the student who is copying out the text that what they are doing is worth it. In the closing paragraphs, the hieroglyphs give us a good look at what the drunken scribe might find when he returned to his sobriety. Quote, Now, it is good to study many things, so that you may learn the wisdom of great men. Thus, you can help to educate the children of the people, while you walk according to the wise man's footsteps. The scribe is seen as listening and obeying, and the listening develops into satisfaction. Hold fast to the words which refer to these things, as your own footsteps hurry. And while you are on your journey, you need never hide your heart. Step out onto the path of learning. The friends of humanity are your company. End quote. The scribe lives forever through his works, his words. He is immersed in the collective wisdom of the ancestors, and this knowledge can guide his path like an enlightened being. The scribe's knowledge gives him the opportunity to teach, and through this good act, he can enliven those around him. Ultimately, the scribe's path is a gateway to higher pleasure, and also to an enduring cycle of prosperity, as his descendants, in turn, gain access to knowledge and privilege. Hopefully, the lost scribe found his way back to this Egyptian ideal. Thank you for listening to this short episode. The translations for these texts are by John L. Foster, poet, professor of English literature, and Egyptologist. Foster takes the adaptive approach to his works, abandoning strict grammatical truth for the spirit and meaning of the words. His translations are the best way to experience these poems if you are a first-timer or simply interested in some of the wisdoms from ancient Egypt. Thanks to his grasp of English and poetics, Foster is able to bring the inner beauties of these works to life in a way that 21st century readers of English can appreciate. I have provided more academic translations on the podcast website, but if you like Foster's writing, you'll find a link to one of his books in the episode description. The lesson of the scribe, wayward and dissipated, is clear. Pleasures, particularly drink, can be a trap. If you or someone you know is having trouble with addictions, please take action. Find your local support groups or phone lines and extend the helping hand to those who are in a bind. Sometimes it's hard to recognize when you are in trouble. Your friends may need your help. That's all from me. Have a great week and I'll see you soon on the History of Egypt podcast. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, 
you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.